Whether you're a pistachio purist who loves the experience of cracking them open, or you just love the convenience of no-shells pistachios, Wonderful Pistachios is the perfect healthy snack when hunger strikes. I happen to love me my pistachios. Uh, I don't want to screw around with the nuts, so I love the no-shells pistachios. Anyway, there are a bunch of flavors to choose from, like honey roasted, smoky barbecue, jalapeno, lime, and more. Wonderful Pistachios is one of the highest protein nuts, and each ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Visit wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. I love fast cars, but there aren't a ton of high-performance EVs. They're certainly out here, there. But when I when I get a chance to get behind the wheel of one, it's I love it. And I was blown away by the Kia EV6 GT. When you get behind the wheel of the Kia, it, it is literally like being in a state-of-the-art rocket ship, but also comfortable. The thing goes from zero to 60 in 3.4 seconds. It is the premium driving experience. And of course, it's an EV. So the climate thanks you. SiriusXM provides access to over 165 channels in the vehicle. Music, sports, news, comedy, yacht rock. Let's go. Little, little steely Dan going in your Kia. Come on now. So check it out today. It is the all-electric Kia EV6 GT. I had a blast checking it out. Believe me, you should do it yourself via kia.com slash EV6. To learn more, that is kia.com slash EV6. Kia, movement that inspires. I hear my father's voice say, Arnold, what do you think? America was created by people sleeping in? You idiot, you lazy bastard. Get up and be useful. Welcome back to part two of Arnold Schwarzenegger. So much to get into. We're going to get right at it. Uh, But in specific today, can't wait to hear about the new book, which is out now called Be Useful, and it's Arnold's Life Hacks, and I can't think of anybody better to give them. Here we go. I always found that really moving when you would talk about California gave you everything. Oh, yeah. I mean, and and I because I feel the same. I mean, imagine to come over here with a dream to become the greatest bodybuilder of all times. And to come here to Muscle Beach and to train in Gold's Gym with all the great, great bodybuilders. And then to become the greatest bodybuilder of all time, to win 13 world bodybuilding championships, you know, five times Mr. Universe. Yeah, five times Mr. Universe, seven times Mr. Olympia, Mr. World, Mr. International, and the list goes on and on. So I, I became... Let's stop for a second. Mm. Paparazzi. Uh, so anyway, to, 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 to come over here and to become the greatest bodybuilder 
And that was only possible because I was training over here in America. It would have never happened in Europe. And then to be in a city that is not only known for Muscle Beach, which is for bodybuilding, but to also have Hollywood. And now it was kind of easy, you know, with the idea that, oh, the next thing I'm going to do is to do movies. And then my dream was to become a leading man in the movies. I want to be not, not a Clint Eastwood. He was like a big, big idol of mine. And, and uh, I want to become another Clint Eastwood, another Charles Bronson, Warren Beatty. These were kind of like Marlon Brando. These were kind of the big players then. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, within a five, seven-year period, I was doing Conan the Barbarian. And I was doing my first big international movie, you know, the financed by Universal Studios and having great producers like Ed Pressman, uh, who just passed away a few months ago, was a wonderful producer, and Dina De Laurentiis. And then Sid Scheinberg was the head of the studio. And those guys kind of like made this movie, had the faith in me. And then all of a sudden it goes from the Ducona number two and to do, you know, the Terminator and Commander and Predator. All of a sudden I worked with Fox Studio and all these other studios. It was like unbelievable. This is only in America. And then it to go and to become the biggest box office hit, you know, with Terminator 2 and make more money than any other movie that year. And then year after year, make movies that made domestic over $100 million. And then to get into comedy and to do Twins and Kindergarten Cop and Junior and all in True Lies and all of those things. I mean, it was like there was no end in sight. And then to step off with Terminator 3 in uh, 2003 promote the hell out of it all over the world and make that movie number one. And then all of a sudden literally step off and step into the other track and run for governor. That's and unbelievable. two months later, I'm governor. <laughs> on October 7th, become governor and they were sworn in on November 17th in Sacramento. You were there. I was there. I, mean, I was, was there when you got the concession call. I'll never yeah. forget it. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that, that is... I mean, only in America, I say to people always, this is, and everything that's happened, I mean, let's talk about, you know, the wealth that I've created and the success financially in real estate and in so many other areas. It was, it's just staggering. And so this is why when people didn't understand that I would walk away from show business where I made a minimum of $20 million a movie, and I made two movies a year, so that's $40 million. And I walked away from that and didn't even take a salary as governor. I gave the money back. Because like I said, it was petty cash for me. You know, it was like a joke. But I mean, and you paid was, your own it, transportation. Oh, you yeah, were everything, everywhere. Everything myself I paid for. So, you know, they didn't understand why I would do that. Why I would sacrifice all of these millions of dollars. And I said to them, I said, look, I gained my wealth because of America. So for me to give something up for America is a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. I say, I would do it with great pleasure anytime. And that's exactly what I did. For seven years, I worked 
and with no salary. And, you know, yes, I made my residuals for the movies because my movies kept playing very well, especially after I became governor. They, they kept selling them, you know, to the airlines and for television and for this and for that. And the, 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 you yeah. know, the, the business went on. But I mean, I didn't do any movies. And uh, as a matter of fact, the only movie that I did during the time I was governor was with Stallone, uh, Expendables. And we had to do it on a Saturday because he wanted me to do a cameo. And so we did it on a Saturday when I didn't work as governor. And I went to, the, we did the scene in the church in Hollywood, secretly. I remember I drove, this. I drove down there. We didn't even rehearse or anything like this. I just walked into the church and we just, the Bruce Willis came out of uh, the booth, the, 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 the confessional or the confessional whatever, yeah. thing came out and it was like all very secretive and always in Slavist and he was the, the director also at the same time, not just the actor. And uh, he directed us and we did in two hours, we did the scene and then I went back into my car and we took off. It was it. <laughs> so this, this is what we did. You're because, like Elvis. You well, showed up or Sinatra. You show up. Get make sure that camera's rolling when I show up. Exactly. That's that was it. So that's the only movie that I did was just to do a favor for Sly because he was very supportive during my governorship. So I wanted to do him the favor and to do this cameo for him. He was. Uh, what's Sly like as a director? By the way, he's very very clear because he's a visionary. This lie is uh, one of the things that I always tell people is the secret to success is to have a very clear vision of where you want to go. And uh, when people have that, half of the battle is won because so many people don't know where to go. And Sly had a very clear vision because he wrote the movie. And so he knew exactly which direction he wanted to go. He knew exactly the way the scene should be shot what close-ups he needed, what medium shots he needed, what wide shots he, he needed, master shots, and all of that stuff. So when he directed, it was very, very clear, and it was not kind of, oh, let's try this. There was no trying. Let's do this. Right. This is what we do. And he always was like that with everything. And I think that's why he's also not only a great director, but he's also a great painter, because he is daring, and he has a clear vision of what the painting should look like. And he just takes those oil cans and he goes in there with his paintbrush and he starts painting. I mean, he has balls. You know, I, I, I paint, but I paint this little, tiny little Yours paintings. are very delicate. Yeah, they're delicate. They're because very I'm delicate. Afraid, yeah. I'm afraid to go big, you know, because- <laughs> It's the, the only place in your life where you go delicate. Yeah, it's, it's like, but I mean, it's like, because it, 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 there is such a thing as that you get kind of like scared, like Sly would say, he says, no, no, just take the big paintbrush and just put a canvas up there and start painting. I say, I don't want to ruin a canvas. He says, Arnold, a canvas costs $3. What are you talking about? You make millions of dollars. What are you worried about ruining a canvas, for Christ's <laughs> sakes? You know, and he always would say that. And Hiro Yamagata, you know, our friend, who is a great, great artist, he also says the same thing to me. But, you know, I can't help it. But they, I always admire him because he just... You know, he had me come up to his garage where he was painting uh, when he lived here, Beverly Park. And he just starts painting and all of a sudden he creates this woman face and all these kind of things he writes on it. No, very modern, daring, blacks and whites and reds and this and that and colorful. And it, 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 he's very creative. One of his paintings sold 
for I think two hundred and eighty thousand dollars. Jesus, over in, in Monaco, and uh, so for 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 a guy that is a boxer actor, right? Not really a professional painter, mm-hmm. and then you have a painting sell for two hundred and eighty thousand dollars and stuff like that. Probably now it sells for more. But I mean, he, every time he painted something for me for my auctions, you know, for the after-school programs. We auction off every year things. Um, I'm, we made a fortune. We made hundreds of thousands of dollars from his paintings because people really put up money for his paintings. It's amazing. He gave me a great piece of advice once. He was like, don't ever shirk on working out your forearms. You just put your, you know, you roll your shirt up there and then people see those muscles and they think you're ripped. I was like, <laughs> well, he has huge forearms. I know he's very Stein into has his big forearms. Yeah, he, he doesn't have big calves, but he has big forearms. That's it. Yeah, yeah he, he's really, really good. And then, and he is for a non-bodybuilder. You know, for someone that works out for the movies and to look good on the screen, and he has gotten an extraordinary body. I mean, it's his deltoids, his back, his abs, and everything. Very, very strong. Where else can you go surfing and skiing in the same day or check out a world-class art museum and camp out under a brilliant night sky same day or hike through the redwoods and get a luxury spa treatment? There's only one answer, California. No matter where you go across this state, you will find a way to play. Look, I love California. Um, And I have not yet surfed and skied in the same day, although I do do both. So that is on my bucket list. It's the most beautiful place in the world. Discover why California is the ultimate playground. Head to visitcalifornia.com to start planning your trip today. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentix. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe black psoriasis, 300 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Do you ever look back at, at the leading men of the 70s? And like I was watching Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, two biggest stars in the world, Redford and Newman. You watch any of these guys and in back to the Cary Grant. So nobody was particularly fit. They were lean, 
but nobody, you guys started it. You started it. You started that whole thing. I mean, now you can't be in a Marvel movie unless you're ginormous. Well, I, there were some guys that were really in good shape, but not very muscular. But I mean, Charlton Heston was always in good shape. Ewell Brunner was always in good shape. And what's his name? Uh, uh, Charles Kirk, Bronson. Kirk, Kirk Douglas. Kirk Douglas was in great shape. Right, yeah, I mean, that's I true. worked with Kirk Douglas in the, in the, in the movie The Villain mm. with Anne Margaret and Kirk Douglas. He invited me over to his hotel room. His room was kind of like two, two floors down from my hotel room. And um, he says, I want you to show me exactly how to do it the right way. I said, do what the right way? And he bends down and he roars out from underneath the bed. Dumbbells. Son of a bitch had dumbbells under his bed. He rolls them out and he starts curling. He says, you wrote and one of the articles that you're turning the wrist when you curl, that this has more effect on the bicep. He was having biceps. And he was trying to do the curl the right way. It was like fantastic to talk bodybuilding talk with Kirk Douglas. And uh, he was as kind of kind as I was about giving him tips about bodybuilding and giving me tips about acting. So when I was doing the scenes with him and stuff like that, he would always come over and says, you know, I would just pronounce this more, slow down a little bit here and all that, because that was new. Right. It was the kind of my, my, my second or third movie that I've done was with Kirk Douglas. Jeez. Right away with a big star like that, that I admired when I was like a kid growing up, right? So, I mean, it was like really amazing. But anyway, I had a wonderful working relationship with him. We became very good friends and always, but he was in shape. So there were several guys like that. Clint was always working out. But what happened, what was different then was that those guys were working out secretly. Because I remember Clint saying to me, bye bye, guys, he says, yeah, after Universal Machine and, uh, you know, Harold Zinken, who created the Universal Machines, uh, he gave me the machines and I have it in my house. And, and so no one knows that I'm working out. I said, is this a secret? Nah, he says, you know, it's always better when you say, I was born like that. Really? Yeah, yeah. So that's what they're, they're, that's the, the, uh, Robert Mitchum, all those guys that they, they want to do look like they were born like that. You know, they, they had this uh, perfect V-shaped body. And only then when Pumping Iron became a huge smash and this international phenomenon and became kind of like the number one documentary in the 70s, uh, only when that kind of made bodybuilding explode and all of a sudden you know, bodybuilding became fashionable. Only then, those guys all started working out officially. And all of a sudden you saw- Why you know, was there a stigma, do you think? There was no, it was just, I think, times change, you know, that the, the, the day people want to know that a star works out. They want to know what the exercises the rock does. They want to know how many times I go to the gym, how many times do I work out, what does my workout look like, and all this kind of, they want to know the details, how to slide, get ready for a movie, and all of this. So, and, you know, they get fascinated by that. And so it became kind of very fashionable that you had to look visually like a hero 
So muscles were required. That's when then there was the explosion in the 80s of uh, people like Stallone, myself, Von Damme, uh, Dolph Lundgren, you know, all of those guys all of a sudden uh, became big stars and were leading men in the movies. The funny thing about it is that in the 70s, when I said I wanted to get it, I wanted to get into movies, all the producers and directors and studio executives and agents were saying to me, it's never going to happen. And one of the three reasons was that my body was too big. They said to me, says, look at the stars today. De Niro. There's Dustin Hoffman, Al Pacino, De Niro, Woody Allen. Those are the sex symbols. People don't want to see big muscles. You're 100 pounds too heavy. Forget it. And sure enough, five years later, all of the things that they said, those naysayers that I never paid attention to, which is one of the rules in my book, Be Useful, is never pay attention to the naysayers. Don't listen to them. Because they always would say it's impossible. And uh, I believe what Nelson Mandela said, that everything is always impossible until someone does it. So it doesn't mean that someone didn't do it before me, even though there were Hercules movies and there were muscle movies, but they felt kind of those movies are out and they will never come back. And sure enough, they didn't expect that Pumping Iron would be such a big smash and that a guy like Bob Rafelson would do a movie called Stay Hungry with a leading man being a bodybuilder. I think that's the most important important movie in many ways of your career. It's the forgotten movie in that you have Terminator, you have all these ginormous cultural right. moments, but Stay Hungry really was the one yeah. that made you yeah. a legitimate actor. Yeah, exactly. Because that, it was one of those movies where people said, well, I guess you can do a movie with someone that is that muscular. Yes, I had to trim down. Yes, I had to lose weight. But they didn't have to go down to 150 pounds like Robert De Niro was. Right. I went down to 210 pounds, you know, and still was muscular so because it was a competitive bodybuilder that I played. And then with that uh, doubling up with Pumping Iron and uh, then Streets of San Francisco where I played a bodybuilder. And then in, in, in The Villain with Kirk Douglas, I played the handsome stranger. <laughs> Always you know, a good one. The handsome stranger with the powder blue outfit, Western <laughs> outfit and all that stuff. But then after that, it was Conan the Barbarian. Oh, yeah. Now, then I did the Jane Mansfield story where I played Mickey Haggerty. So oh, they, they, they dusted that script off and they said, wait a minute, Schnitzel is around. He has muscles. We can have him play Mickey Haggerty because Mickey Haggerty was Mr. Universe. Yeah, yeah, He was sure. this Hungarian bodybuilder. So he had an accent. So I was perfect for that. So the, the, the bottom line is that when they said, it's not going to work, you getting in the movies and especially not being a leading man. Uh, they said it was because of your accent. They said that the German accent is scary for most Americans. It reminds them of this, the Nazis. and this, uh, So yes, you could play a Nazi office or something like that. That would be fine. But the, other than that, you, you would not get away with it. And um, 
Then they said the body was too big. And then they said that no one would be able to pronounce Schwartz and what's in schnitzel or something like that. So yeah, they were laughing at my name. And they said, says, there's the three things why it would not work. And then sure enough, I come out with Conan the Barbarian and uh, <coughs> John Milius, the director, famous director, right? And amazing so, writer. Both, yeah, the yeah. amazing writer. So he said to the press, if we wouldn't have had Schwarzenegger, we would have had to build one. So now he establishes, if I wouldn't have had that body, he couldn't have done the movie and he would have never, never been able to direct a movie like that. So think about that. So then I come out with Terminator, you know, literally like two and a half years later, I come out with Terminator and Jim Cameron says, what really made this work is that Schwarzenegger talked like a machine. <laughs> I don't know if it was a compliment or not, but I mean, he made it sound like a compliment yeah, yeah, because yeah. he said to me, he said, if he wouldn't have, if, that's what made it, made the machine totally believable because he did not only just look different with his enormous body and with the way he walked and acted, but he talked like a no, machine. 100, listen, I so remember. He said, so that's what really made it. So now I said to myself, here's the second one now that they said it would never work because of my accent. And now this is a big plus for Terminator, one of the most historic characters. I remember seeing Terminator in the theater. I went and saw it with all the guys from the Brat Pack. We were shooting St. Elmo's Fire and it came out and we all went, all the boys, Judd Nelson, Andrew McCarthy and Emilio Estevez and I, we went and saw Terminator one on, on a Friday night and then it came back on a Saturday night. And it's when you say, I'll be back. And with anybody else saying that line, anybody else, it's the accent makes it. Right. Jim's right. right. It isn't the line. Line's great. Line's perfectly fine. It's, it's the... But, then, it, but that, that's, uh, that's just to show you. And then it didn't take much longer than that. In the 80s, all of a sudden, articles started coming out how actors in Hollywood are not anymore changing their names. Oh, interesting. Because they figured out that a name that is hard to pronounce and hard to remember is also hard to forget. So that was the new idea. And always President Ramaswamy. Exactly. There you have it. I think I think we've we've but all cracked of a sudden, it. All of a sudden, Gina Lola Brigida, <laughs> the actress, yeah, well, that didn't change her name, right? So all of a sudden, the the, the more complicated names became in, and uh, they mentioned as a matter of fact my name as an example, and it says no one tells Schwarzenegger anymore to change his name. It just says you exactly what my vision was is to have the posters say on top Schwarzenegger. And then the title below, Schwarzenegger, Terminator. Schwarzenegger, Predator. Schwarzenegger, Kindergarten Cop. And this is how it went. Exactly the way I dreamt. And but again, it goes back to one thing, and that is don't listen to naysayers and be in America. Because here, those things are possible. And overseas, and I've never had anyone come up to me anywhere, whenever I travel around the world, and say, can you help me get a visa to get to go to Russia? Or can you help me? I want to move to China. Oh, can you help me? Do you have some connections with India? Because I want to go and work in India. I want to become a big star in India. Yes, you can become a big star in India, of course. You can, but 
what everyone says is, can you please, Arnold, help me and write something for the immigration service, a letter or something like that, so I can come to America. Anywhere in the world, if you're in Australia, if you're in China, if you're in Russia, if you're in Africa, if you're in the Middle East, it doesn't matter where you are, all over Europe, people ask me if I can help them to come to America. Then why is it that most Americans feel so bad about America? Well, look, I mean, maybe they don't. I don't mean to say that. I don't want to use that as a blanket statement because I, I don't believe that, actually. In fact, I don't believe it at all. Why is it that a very specific group of Americans feel so badly about America or ambivalent? They don't feel, let's say ambivalent. Well, you will always have people complaining about things. And it doesn't matter if you go to France, the French will complain about France. There's British that complain about Great Britain. Right. There's Germans that complain about Germany and all of that stuff. So I think that the bottom line is you hit the nail on the head when you said that Americans don't appreciate as much. That's what you really said. Yeah, that's really what they, they, yes. they don't really appreciate as much the country as an immigrant would. And that's natural. It's, 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 it's totally natural that if you grow up with us in a certain house where you, your parents have wealth and you grow right. up in the house, you don't appreciate the house the same way as if you bring a guest in and they look around and says, oh my God, look at this place, look at the marble floor, look at this fireplace, look at the chandelier, look at those paintings. You, have. you say, oh, gee, I see this stuff every day from the time I was born. I don't even pay attention to it anymore. So that's what happens. Right. So I think that, that someone like me, I see firsthand how great this country works, how great, how, you know, you can do things here that no one has ever done before. And um, it's just that the people in America are also not so jealous than the Europeans are. If in Austria, someone drives a better car than you drive, then you'll be jealous. And here, no. Here they go up to you. And then no matter what car I have, I, I, have your, I had Rolls Royces, I had Bentleys, I had Hummers, I had Oshkosh, I had Unimogs, whatever it is. And people would just come over and say, wow, where did you get this car? Oh, this is an amazing car. I love this car. love the color. They will always give you a compliment. Or if you say to somebody, I want to get rich and famous, and this is good for you. Over there, I say, yeah, yeah, sure. They will be waiting for you. <laughs> you know, yeah, I said, when I said in Austria, I want to go to America. Yeah, I'm, absolutely. They will be waiting for you over there. I mean, they can't wait for the Schwarzenegger to come over to America. Yeah, sure. They need you over there. You know, it's always kind of this negative stuff. And uh, and then when you, you have to be very careful not to drive around with a flashy car over there because people say, oh, it's a show off. And it will be something negative. Here, it doesn't matter. Here, you can drive any car you want. No one says, he's a show off. They say, oh, he's doing well. I'm happy for him. You know, no matter if you show, if you say, say to people, I just bought a new house. No one says, say, oh, yeah, he wants to be one of the stars live up there in Santa Barbara and stuff like that. No, people are just appreciative. They just love it. They say, oh, this is what I want to do one day. I want to make movies like Rob Lowe and then have a house in Santa Barbara. They get inspired by that. I was always inspired by, you know, I'm from Ohio. I didn't know anybody in entertainment. Yeah. I, 
I, I, I love seeing people do well. Yeah. And, and I, because you have to have something to aspire to. Right. You have to. Yeah. You have to have something to motivate you, to keep so, you going. So, so anyway, so this is, uh, I, I just think that we're in the right place. Yes, we're going through some difficult moments. But I always remind people when they say we have never, ever gone through this kind of a hell before. I said, well, wait a minute. I said, when I came over here in 1968, I say Martin Luther King was killed. Bobby Kennedy was killed. Did the riots at the Democratic Convention where people got killed and clubbed and attacked by dogs and everything like this. We had the Vietnam War. We had the hippies run around all over the place getting stoned out of their minds. I was one of them in Ashbury. What is it? The, the Hate. park? Hate Ashbury. Yeah. yeah, my friends took me up there and they were sleeping out there in the park getting stoned out of my mind, <laughs> right? So it was like, all of this was going on. Uh, then there was Watergate. I mean, then was a president resigning. And I mean, it just went on and on and on. The madness didn't stop. Where people said, oh my God, what is going on here? Then we gave up the Vietnam War. Then we realized that we were in the wrong war in the first place, that we should have never been in Vietnam and 58,000 people were killed for nothing. In an order. I mean, this is like people coming home in body bags every day. Uh, so this is the kind of America that I came to in the beginning. And we weathered through it and we got through it. But it took one great leader, Ronald Reagan. You know, he pulled us through the 70s. Uh, I mean, Carter tried, but the, the one that was really the star was Reagan. And he pulled us out of this mess. Did you know him at all? And yeah, of course, yeah. What was he like as a person? A very entertaining uh, Reagan was a expert storyteller. Really? Oh yeah, within no time. He would go into a house. I remember when he used to go to Marvin Davis's house in Beverly Hills. And uh, they would have a fundraiser there or they would have just some event there, some dinner. And Reagan would walk in then within no time, not because he was president, but within no time, he had 50 people standing around him. It was all because he was telling stories. He would walk in and he would start telling a story. He was just the most unbelievable storyteller and smooth and funny, great, great uh, kind of jokes he had and um, loved telling jokes and speeches, always starts his speech with a joke and all that stuff. And so he was just really good and he was kind of also very casual in some ways, but in some ways very buttoned up and he could play the part of, I never really, I, to be honest with you, I never knew exactly was it him that was that buttoned up that the, because he was in suits so many times, black tie and all of that great looking suits. Not the typical Washington stuff with the blazer, the blue blazer and the red tie and the right. white shirt. But now he had brown, uh, you know, kind of suits and he had beige, light beige suits and black suits and in you know, a different car, you just mixed it up. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, it, it just, I don't know, did he, because he was an actor, did he act out the, the, the part as president when it comes to clothes? 
or was that his style? Right. Because even when he was governor, he always had dark, dark suit on, black suit and, and all that stuff. So, so, you know, I think that maybe it was his style. I don't know. But I mean, he had this casual side to him where he was in jeans and roll up the sleeves and chop wood up yeah. there. Santa Barbara. And he's in Santa Barbara. And then he had uh, the other side, which was kind of like very elegant and uh, very sophisticated. And uh, he also was a person that was able to rely on his team. And there's something very comforting that you have to trust in your team. Because so many people today, they go in the White House and they don't really trust their team. You know, are they leaking or not leaking? Are they really in there for themselves? Or are they really there to represent you and all of that stuff? But the Reagan was here, this Ed Meester and this Baker and all those guys here, this gang around that he trusted fully and he let them operate. They've been and with he, him forever. Yeah, forever. And he, he created direction. He created the vision. And George Schultz, remember? Oh, God bless was, him. God bless him, exactly, yeah. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentix. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe black psoriasis, 300 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Tell me about the book. How long did it take you to... By the way, I have to say, your your autobiography, which I love, loved it when it came out. For sure, the, the best title you could have possibly come up with. Total Recall. I mean, come on. What a slam dunk. Well, thank you. Slam dunk title. Thank you. And this, well, the, this, this is, is going to be amazing. This, this is amazing. This is, uh, you know, I never, ever thought that I will be kind of like in a field of motivational material. Seems, but to me, it seems like the perfect. It's, 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 it's natural. Yes. 
it's organic because, yeah. you know, I recognize the fact that all my life I've always motivated people. You know, I always had people train with me and I trained them and I did seminars all over the world in bodybuilding and in fitness and all this stuff. So it's, it's a natural thing. It's, I think my personality, I love to inspire people and to get them going and to tell them everything is possible and all this stuff. But I didn't realize that when I do, you know, a speech at the university, a commencement speech, and I give people the rules to success because they're now going out there into the world. Here's some rules for, of success, for success, some tools that you can use. I didn't realize that that would, would become such a big hit. And so many people would ask me that from then on that all my public speeches became kind of motivational speeches. You know, I usually- So the genesis of it was the response to your organic rules at for USC, kids coming out. To, exactly. I gave yeah. a USC a commencement speech. I think when Patrick, when my son graduated or something like that. But in, in any case, it was like a, such a huge hit that I did another one commencement speech and did something similar. Huge hit again. Then people said, why don't you write a, a book about that? So I had no you know, interest in writing a book about it. I said, I'm just going to use that theme. And so from that point on, instead of people asking me to talk about the environment or to talk about the governorship or about politics versus entertainment versus bodybuilding and all they just wanted to have me pump up their audience. Right. right. So, you know, if it is, was uh, a convention uh, for real estate agents or for car dealers or whatever or insurance company, whatever it was anywhere in the world, I will always be asked to do a motivational speech. And so I would give them the rules to success. And, um, you know, it became kind of like, so uh, I did it so many times that I didn't even have to look at paper anymore. I just give an hour speech about success. Right. And I gave them the rules to success and, and uh, you know, what to pay attention to and all that stuff. And, um, and then, all, you know, one thing led to the next that actually... Uh, my book agent, uh, well, actually, I didn't even know who the hell he was, uh, but uh, he was the book agent for the agency that handles me for my movies, UTA. Mm -hmm. So he came to me one day and he said, uh, can I you know, have a meeting with you? And I said, sure. He says, yeah, I have an idea for a book for you. You know, and I'm, I do this all the time. This is my profession. And he said, you should do a book about how to be successful. And, uh, you know, I find you a writer uh, that can help you with that. Someone that is an expert in writing this kind of material. And um, I would like to set up some meetings over the phone or FaceTime with, with uh, publishers from all over the world. And I said, well, you know, I, I have to tell you one thing about me. I have no patience. I said, because I, I did a book and self-published it called Seven Years. When I was finished with the governorship, I did this book called Seven Years. It was a thick, hardcover book and a coffee table I book. Have it. Yeah. yeah. So I said, I did this book in six weeks. I said, so I know what is possible. I said, so when a publisher comes to me and I talk to them now and they say to me, 
that uh, yeah, by next year we can do this book, we can publish it. I said, I'm out. I said, I just publish it myself. I said, you know, fuck that. I just can't handle it. He says, no, no. I said, let's just, why don't we just have to, to, to talk with those publishers? So he would set up, you know, uh, conversations and, and meetings on FaceTime. And I would talk to them and I was talking to these publishers and I see their enthusiasm. And they would say, can you write up 20 pages of an idea of what the book would be like? So I write up the, the, the 20 pages and uh, we give it to each one of them. There was like six or seven publishers that we talked to. And, uh, and they immediately started a bidding war. And, um, you know, and, uh, we've ended up with more, much more money than I, than I expected. And it was like wonderful, you know? And, uh, uh, so now here we are that, uh, they promised to me, each one of the publishers promised me that they will have a three months period where I write the chapters. And then there will be a three months period where they will edit and lay out and that by the fall, the book will come out. And Penguin, you know, won the bid. So there was also Penguin in England, right? And Penguin in America. In and England. in England, okay, got it. So anyway, so there was two that were bidding. And uh, so for England, we sold it to, to one and to, for uh, Penguin in America. And the, so we went to work with a writer and started working on it for the three months. Exactly the first week in, in April, we were finished, handed it in, and they were absolutely ecstatic with the material. There's a few little changes here and there which we, which we made. And then, of course, you have to do the most difficult thing, which is to send in out the book all printed up, and now you have to read it out loud. Yeah, that's... Right? You have to do the oral kind of a presentation of the book. But I mean, listen, who, who doesn't a, want to hear your voice, though? I know, doing, but I mean, I mean you know, on, right? I, I have to say, I'm not the, the, the <laughs> best reader. Um, so I, I kind of like, so they said to me, says, look, most people do those things in four days yeah. and uh, eight hours a day. I said, well, first of all, I would never, ever do anything <laughs> eight hours a day. I said, it's not going to happen. <laughs> so, I said, so I'm going to go and do two, three hours a day and that just take more time. And that's what we did. We did two weeks. We worked on it and did, uh, did uh, you know, reading out loud the, the book. Uh, everyone was very happy about that. And, uh, and so now it's coming out on October 10th. And it's basically the tools that will help people become more successful. And it's kind of all the stuff that I've learned. So this is not stuff that I have done research on or that I'm taking someone else's ideas None of that. As a matter of fact, I have to say, honestly, I've never, ever read a self-help book. Never. Because I have really no interest in any of it. I know what works for me. And I know that this very same tools that I used and that I learned over the years uh, have helped so many others around me. And so... I basically put that down, those tools, and the, the, the word be useful is just something that my father said to me all the time. You know, he just says, whatever you do, son, 
be useful. And, uh, and it had such an impact on me because it brought actually guilt. So that when I sleep in past six o'clock, I hear my father's voice say, Arnold, what do you think? America was created by people sleeping in? You <laughs> idiot, you lazy bastard. Get up and be useful. So I heard this voice. And he says to myself, I think it would be really cool to use this as a title. Be useful. You know, and because it, it means so many different things. Yeah. And so this is what we did. We used it as a title. People loved it. And, you know, and the, that, that's it now. And I'm really looking forward to going on the promotion tour. And in the meantime, I'm doing a few podcasts and a, a bunch of interviews. And um, I can't do talk shows because we are on strike. Uh, so I do other things, other interviews. Uh, but I will be traveling all over the world because, as you know, I always feel like the world is the marketplace. For sure. It's not just America. It's not just Germany or Europe. It's like the whole world. And I will make sure that everyone in the world knows about this book and that, uh, uh, you know, that the mothers and fathers can buy it for their kids for Christmas uh, or you can just buy it as a gift to motivate people. And uh, Rob, the interesting thing is that we have help for everything that we do. As you know, when you go up skiing, we hire a ski instructor yeah. to take us skiing, yeah, right? Sure. To, to teach us the bumps and the this and the that. Right. Cut the lines also yeah, yeah. to get up and down fast and all those kind of things. But you, you have a ski instructor. If you want to learn English, like I did, I had a speech coach and I had a voice coach and the dialect removal coach and all of those kind of things. So you have a coach for everything that you want to do, but there's really no coach out there that you can go to that if you say, I want to be more successful. There's no one there that you call, like a dentist or something like this, <laughs> can I talk to you and can you make me more successful? Right. So this is why I think it's important that this kind of material is out there and that people have an opportunity to just go and go through it and I think they will pick up a lot of really great stories and great anecdotes and also how I came about learning those very important tools to make you more successful. Well, the thing I, the thing I, I like so many things about you, Arnold, but the, one of the things is how you never sort of rest, rest on your laurels. You could have just quit after being the successful bodybuilder. You could have just said, okay, I'm biggest movie star in the world, you know, you could have, the other thing is amazingly, after the political achievement, you went where you go, well, now what do I do? You're like, I'm going to go back and do what I did. I'm going to do movies again. Yeah. Like, really? After being the governor, you're going to go, yeah. like, you don't give a fuck. No. I mean, you, t there are two things that I think Arnold is the embodiment. Well, there's a lot of them, but talking about giving no fucks. I mean, if you ever had your face on a coin, it wouldn't say e pluribus unum. It would say, I give no fucks. And the other thing is. We should put that on the kind of coin. You should. <laughs> Can we make this coin, the Arnold coin? Because you know the coin challenge everybody does? You, I'm sure you have to have your own coin, if you, right? Yeah. We need we have to do. the governor coin. We have the Arnold Classic coin. We need the I give no fucks coin. Yeah. Yeah. You give to very specific people. Exactly. Right? Exactly. But I, I, I tell you, it's an interesting thing you say that because 
what's interesting about not giving a fuck is the very thing why I was never scared of failure. Because I don't give a shit. I look at it in the same way, how far can I fall? The, the ground is six feet down, okay, I fall. That's how far I can fall. And so I think I learned very early on, and this is one of the things I talk about in the book, is that you learn in weightlifting, that you, when you, if you want to go to the limit and find out how much you can lift, you have to be willing to fail, because this is the only way you find out how much you can lift. Right. So, of course, I had to, I failed 10 times to bench press 500 pounds, but the 11th time I did it. And so I don't shy away from failure. I never did. You know, of course you, you, you fail. I mean, my movies, there were movies that went right into the toilet. I mean, there were bodybuilding championships that I lost. There were powerlifting championships that I lost, weightlifting championships I lost. Uh, in Sacramento, the initiatives in, in 2005 that I've lost. Yeah, there's the things that I've failed and fallen over, and uh, but I always got up right away, dusted myself off and kept going. I'm not afraid of failure because too many people are scared of failure and it makes them frozen. It freezes them and they cannot make a move in life. But if you're free, it's like, what did they, again, it goes back to sports where I learned my lessons. What do they tell you? You know, just be free. You know, just do the full swing in golf. Yeah. Be free. Don't, don't choke. Don't be scared because the people sometimes overthink the whole thing. They're worried about failing and that the ball goes off to the bushes or something. You're, you're describing my golf game right now perfectly, by the way. No, but I mean, this is, a, this is the frustrating thing. So it's all about that something sets in your mind that makes you scared to, to, for, to screw up. Yeah. But the more you're free, the more you get rid of those fears and not give a shit. Yes, I can fail. But let's always remember what the... Uh, Michael Jordan said, I mean, it's like, I missed 5,000 balls, baskets, at 280 games, I screwed up. But that's what made me the greatest. You know, so this is what it is. That the, the lesson is with failure, not with success. We don't learn as much by success as uh, through success. We learn our most important lessons through failure. And, um, and so this is why I say, this is one of the rules that I have in there. And so it's very interesting that you bring that up. You don't give a shit, Donald. It's true. I don't care about any of that because the same as if, what's the worst that can happen? What are you going to do to me? What's the worst? Right? So that's, that's yeah. it. So this is why I'm not afraid of failure or of falling, falling down. I know how to get up. Well, this is the be this is the greatest. I, thank you for coming on the show, and and this is a great it was a great opportunity to come back and hang with you and meet the animals. And I mean, I, this is I'm glad that we filmed this because just the notion of hearing Arnold talk with a pig walking by, you, you exactly. can't make it up. It's the greatest. Exactly what they were supposed to bring uh, Lulu and whiskey over, but I mean uh, they haven't found the cookies yet. We, we used up all the cookies and now the day is cookie day. Well, there you have it. That was the Sermon on the Mount. That was, that was the real deal. Um, by the way, 
There are video clips of our interview available on YouTube. And just to see Arnold's outfit alone, I think you need to do it. That You want to talk about somebody who gives no Fs? It's, it's Arnold. He's made a career on giving no Fs. And when you see the outfit, you'll really know. Um, he's, he's the best and I love him. I really, truly love the man. And um, Arnold, thank you for being on and thank you guys for, for listening. And now it's time to go to YouTube and feast your eyes on the uh, extravaganza at Arnold's house. You've been listening to Literally with Rob Lowe, produced by me, Nick Liao, with help from associate producer, Sarah Bagar. Research by Alyssa Grawl, editing by Jerron Ferguson. Engineering and mixing by Rich Garcia. Our executive producers are Rob Lowe for Low Profile, Adam Sachs, Jeff Ross, and myself for Team Coco, and Colin Anderson for Stitcher. Booking by Deirdre Dodd, music by Devin Bryant. Special thanks to Hidden City Studios. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Literally with Rob Lowe. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com.